Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Baby, it's cold outside. Yes. It, it's so cold, I think my microphone's frozen. I don't think so. I can't function with a frozen microphone. You see how I have the skill to make anything sound phallic? Oh, because you wiggled your hips, yes. Yeah. If, if it was a video along with this, they might... Yeah, TV instead of radio. Notice, yeah. We'd have no followers if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's not just here in Denver... The whole com- country, as I understand it, is pretty cold right now. You know, being mid-January and all, makes sense. What mm-hmm. a great weekend to curl up with a good book. <laughs> How about our Sober Evolution? Recover your... <laughs> Wait a minute. So, sober Evolution. You're so bad at selling. <laughs> I don't like the subtitle. <laughs> or I like the subtitle, I just don't like remembering the subtitle. Uh, uh. Evolve... Uh, into re- involve into sobriety and recover your alcoholic marriage. Sober evolution is all you have to know. All one word. Thought I was really cute. People struggle with that, but it is on sale. The Kindle version for ninety nine cents on Amazon. Did you know that, Sherry? I did know that. We've talked about it. Um, Sounds like you're enthusiastic about it. You can't even cover your yawn as you're talking about it. But no, it's cold. What a great time to read a book and. And as we've explained, the reason it's on sale for 99 cents, it's about us. It's not about you, listener. Uh, we're not trying to offer you a great deal on a great book, although I think that's what it is. Uh, the way the book industry works, the way the publishing industry works, when you go to to sell a new book concept to publishers, they're immediately, first question they want to know is, tell us about the sales of your previous books. And so... The more copies of Sober Evolution we sell, the better deal we will get the second time around. And so it's all about us. It's not about you. So, you know, if you've got a buck to spare, you know, I feel like we've been educating our listener audience for the last six weeks when we've been talking about this. Because I, you know, this is something that's kind of the hidden truth about the publishing industry. I think most people who put their book on sale say, hey, we got a great deal for you, limited time only. Listener, reader, this is for you. In our case, I think we're being more honest than that. It's not about you. It's about us. So so can you help us out? We're not here to educate you, at least not about the publishing industry. We need your help. Can you... Can you spare a dollar? Don't tell me. Brother, can you spare Don't a tell me you don't know how Amazon works. <laughs> With that like one click option thing, you could literally do this in less than a minute and really help us out. We've we've gotten some support. So for those of you that have already done this, we really appreciate it. We've seen uh, a lot of a lot of those Kindle versions sold this January. Um, but if you haven't done it yet, you know. Get off your buns. You don't even have to get on your off your buns. I was going to say, you, uh, do you your, know how Amazon works? You can do it from your phone or just wherever. Anyway, we'd really appreciate it. The book title is Sober Evolution, and I don't know how long we're going to do this. I guess it depends on how it goes. We're certainly not making any money off of this deal, so that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. We just want to reach more people. If we wanted to make money, we'd have advertisements, but we don't do that. So see there, we try to help you out. We don't waste your time with advertisements. Throw a bone. Give us a buck. Buy the book. Thanks. 
God, I feel like I'm. I feel like I got a little sign on a street corner when I do that at the beginning it of all these. It was a little long. Is that why you yawned your way through? You're pandering. Your pandering was a little, a little long. Cherry, everything I do is a little <laughs> long. Uh, we also want to share the exciting news. We teased this a little bit on last week's episode, <laughs> but the time has come. Next week will be our episode. The Rumble with Matt and Amber, or Amber and Matt. We're going to give her top billing because, you know, she deserves it. But Amber Hollingsworth, who has been on the podcast several times, she is a fantastic uh, you know, therapist. She's a professional. She works with uh, people that are in addiction and recovering from addiction and the families. So she has the, the full gamut, her and her partnerships in her... Uh, practice, but she knows a lot about this stuff. And for the most part, we agree on just about everything, but there are a few areas where Amber and I, I think, disagree a little bit, so we're going to rumble. And you are the moderator. You're going to ask questions of Amber and I, and I mean, how are the questions coming? Have you been working on those? <laughs> <laughs> I have a week. <laughs> um, so, uh, in full transparency to our audience... Uh, you were pretty apprehensive about this. In fact, I think still you think this is a really... Let's just be bold. You think this is a dumb idea. I I don't think it's a dumb idea. I think the way you're saying you're going to rumble is a little... I don't know, bold. Yeah. Let's go with your word, bold. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be some schooling. And there are different trains of thoughts. And not every... Schooling. Yes. Let's stick with that for a second. You think I'm getting schooled, don't you? (laughs) I think there's going to be some things that you have questions about, and then she's going to explain, and then you're going to understand. But again, we're not... There isn't a one-size-fits-all for recovery and for alcoholics. So approach might be different. So I think she's going to school you in her train of thought of her approach on some things. And then... We'll see how it all falls out. I do say quite often that I love being wrong because I'm not learning anything when I'm right. And so I love being wrong. So this is a great opportunity for me to be wrong, having Amber on the podcast. You're right. I think I'm going to get schooled too, which is interesting because she's a professional. She's studied and worked with lots and lots of people. Right. She's gone to school for it. But I lived it. She's not an alcoholic. I was. So, hmm. I don't know. You're probably right. It's probably going to be a <laughs> big disaster. <laughs> or I'm, by the end of it, I'm going to be sucking up to her. Matt. I'm going to be like, Please thank you, that. thank you, Amber, for teaching. <laughs> she is charming, and she's really probably the last person I would ever want to actually rumble with. Uh, your apprehension uh, scares me a lot, but that's okay. We'll do it. <laughs> Whatever. We'll put it out there. Y'all can decide. Uh, if you have a listener question for for Sherry and I, the uneducated in the in the recovery community, I'm just going to refer to myself as uneducated from now on. Thanks, Sherry. Put that right in my title. Matt, the uneducated. If you have a listener question for us, we would love to hear it. Send that to Matt at SoberAndUnashamed.com. We did a little reset here to start the new year, and so... Uh, we have, we're going through a new batch of listener questions. We've received some. We could use some more, though, so we'd love to hear from you. Send those in. We're going to address one right now. 
this, as you know, often the listener questions come in in multiple paragraphs. People are, they need to share the backstory. Totally get it, respect it, love it. But I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll summarize this one and then I'll get to the actual question. Uh, this person wrote about the fact that she and her husband are both high-functioning alcoholics, but she is doing a dry January for herself, and her husband's not only not doing it, he's kind of mocking her mm. because she's doing it. Um, other than the fact that Sherry doesn't drink, she says she really relates to everything you say on the podcast, Sherry. Mm-hmm. So even though she's a drinker, it sounds like she's suffering some from some gaslighting and uh, some denials and just some nastiness that she has to live with. Uh, he mocks her sobriety. He, he mocks her attempts to get in shape. He's abusive verbally and emotionally, at least. Uh, trying to read between the lines in the, in the email. Definitely abusive verbally and emotionally. Let's say that. Uh, they have the same arguments over and over, and he wants, quote, more and better sex. He fails to see the connection between his drinking... Oh, wait a minute, is this where I quoted? Yeah, so I'm going to quote her now. He fails to see the connection between his drinking and my feelings toward him. Mm. That's what I want you to respond to, Sherry. How, how did that play out for you as far as me being unattractive because of the alcohol. Because of the alcohol and the behavior that came because of the alcohol. Yes. Yeah, exactly. it was it was really hard to like have a really substantial argument that you could understand to say, listen, I don't like what you look like and act like and smell like and think like when you're drinking. But that's how if it was now, that's how I would say it to you. Like if you were, why would you say that now? Because you're in a sober right mind, and you could like at least begin to question and understand and try to dig in and figure out why I'm feeling those those ways. You can't when alcohol is clouding your brain. Why not? Well, because you're you're selfish, you're addicted, you're drunk half the time, you're argumentative, you have low self esteem. You can't handle that. You can't handle any of that. And I would say top billing is you're selfish. You don't you don't get it. And you're not empathetic or sympathetic to anybody else because the addiction is controlling you. And I wouldn't even dare say like addiction necessarily, but if you heavily drink and you're daily or, you know, and even if you're high functioning or say it's just daily, you, you can't. Your brain is not functioning in, with the mindset of, you know, with others in mind. And you want to... I think you want to divert all of your, um, all of that back to them. Like you want to just say, well, that's your problem. But that's what I was going to ask you. If, if you had been bold enough to say, listen, I don't like the way you smell when you're drinking. It's not attractive to me. I don't like the way you're slurring your words. I don't like your mannerisms. What do you think the reaction would have been? Even if you didn't do it while I was actively drinking, but you did it the next day (laughs) and maybe... We woke up and I was like, oh, you know, I would have liked some connection last night. It would have been nice if we could have bonded a little bit. But, you know, you were standoffish and you and then you retorted with, well, listen, you smelled like whiskey. You were slurring your words. You were, uh, you know, you were stumbling around. You yelled at the kids. How do you think I would have reacted? You would have been very defensive and you would have somehow shifted that blame on me. Um 
in your drinking days, I think somehow you would have shifted that to me that I was expecting too much, that it wasn't that bad. So gaslighting, shifting the blame. And then it would have, you know, you would have felt hurt. And so then you would have just hurt, would have gone to anger rather than trying to figure out anybody else. So you would have reacted poorly for sure. So this listener talks about the fact that she is also a high functioning alcoholic. She owns that. She's in a dry January, as we said. So that's not exactly your situation, but you did used to drink and party with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there were times where we were both drinking and you wanted to, you know, as you said, connect, but, you know, have sex. There was no connection there in a lot of our earlier days. But then there would be times where even though I was drinking, I'm still like, no, like you were just not the person I want to be around. And whether you're a drinker or not, or you're an alcoholic or not, if you're still married to someone who is addictive and they're crude and mean and hateful and resentful and you know all of those things it doesn't mean that you're you know that you get a pass you just have to do whatever they want I mean you need to like stand up for yourself maybe they're an alcoholic but they don't act like that towards their spouse but if that spouse is acting like that towards you it doesn't mean that you have to give in and feel like you know like you deserve it or you're being punished for your drinking or part of it. Because sometimes I felt like that. I felt like I'm being punished. In, and like, you know, it's karma coming back to me. Like when you were drinking and behaving poorly. And if I had drank and along with you. So did that make the gaslighting and the denials and my manipulation, did that help that to sink in a little more? When you would say, oh, maybe it is. Maybe this is karma. Maybe I have brought this on myself. Yeah. Yeah, that was. What do you think that about was, that now? In your, in you, you know, in the state of mind you are now, where not only have you made recovery, you've witnessed my recovery, our relationships in good space, and you've worked with all these people. How do you think of that kind of sentiment now, where you take some of the blame on yourself because you think you've brought it on yourself with the way you've lived your life? I have a lot of empathy for people that feel like that because I did feel like that and I don't think it's like silly or ridiculous or stupid to think that that's what you know you feel is going on because somehow you have to explain it you know and it takes a long time to kind of grasp the idea that you're a quote-unquote victim of alcohol as well. Because, you know, I despise that word in a lot of ways. That I was a victim and I, it wasn't my fault. And and I had to kind of come to terms with that because I thought, I am in control of my life. I am responsible for my actions. I am being accountable for what I've put myself into. I am trying to stay and stick it out. And so, therefore, those are, you know, those are choices I made. And I have to be responsible for my choices. So I felt like that was a long sort of shift of mindset that just took a while to understand that I uh, it wasn't my fault, that I am a victim, but it doesn't have to mean that I'm powerless and I can't change. But then I had to accept that alcohol is the blame and alcohol changed me yeah. a lot too. Yeah. So when I hear people say things like that, I don't think at all poorly of them. Well, I wasn't suggesting yeah, you Yeah, I mean, poorly. I just feel like it's just, it's part of the healing process and part of that recognition. 
and that education piece. So you have empathy for them. You lived it. You felt that way. But you also reject that notion. You reject the notion that somebody, that you brought this on yourself by whatever past actions you want to pick. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it just takes a lot of time and it just takes a lot of like, I think healing and mindset change because I mean, sure. I had a lot of wild drinking days in college and, um, high school and early adulthood that made me feel like it I was getting punished for, for my past behavior. But now I think, you know, that was, that was the hardest pill to swallow, I think in, in recovery. Hmm. That's really interesting and super helpful. So again, the quote from the email from this woman was, he fails to see the connection between his drinking and my feelings toward him. That's the part of the email I wanted to most address, and so we just did. But I also emailed this person and told her that we would be addressing her question on this episode. And her actual question at the bottom of the email was, do you think the relationship is salvageable? And so... I just want to briefly address that by saying, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Either way, your action is the same. Detach for your sake. Detach for your kid's sake. Don't let the verbal abuse, the emotional abuse continue. There was a section in the email where she talked about finances. I don't want to go into her specific situation. Um... She's actually the breadwinner, and she's worried about paying alimony, uh, understandably, if you read the whole email. But, you know, that finances thing can go either way. That can be your situation, or you can be in a situation where you're worried that you won't have enough money to survive if you leave. You know, just from all the the situations and cases that we've learned about, I think you've got to find a way. I think you've got to put that. That can't be the deciding factor. Your health and the health of your kids is way too important. And the money thing somehow seems to always work at, work itself out. I know that's a very kind of naive sounding thing to say, but it, it just does. Whether it's support of family or friends or, or just a massive change in lifestyle, um, that part will work itself out. And the reason I say either way, when the question is, do you think the relationship is salvageable? The reason I say either way your action is the same That detachment, that setting boundaries, that um, deciding what you deserve, writing it down, demanding it, and he can either be a part of that or not. That's his decision. Your boundaries are your decision. He can either decide to be a part of it or not. And either way, it's the right answer, I think. Because if uh, it causes a change in him, if he sees the error of his ways and he sobers up and he does the recovery work and he becomes a nice person, then great. And if he can't do that, if that's not in him and he doesn't want to stop drinking, then um, you know you deserve what you deserve. And if he can't provide it and be a part of it, then you deserve that alone or elsewhere or whatever, whatever the next chapter looks like. But staying for financial reasons... Or staying and just hoping things are going to change. Um, that doesn't. I've never seen that be successful. I think that's the best way to put it. So. Yeah, I think that it's. I mean, from what we've seen and experienced ourselves, like the change 
has to come from within that person, but you can encourage that. And we've used this term before, like lowering, um, you know, like raising the bottom instead of waiting yeah. until they go to rock bottom. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, raising the bottom. Got your tears flowing and I now know. you're coughing. Sorry. I know. Thanks right at the beginning, but I, like I said, I empathize with her. But <clears throat> that raising the bottom. Yeah. Because, I mean, we tried for 10 years. And I don't know if you were ever going to change on your own until you started to see the effects of what was happening. Well, one of the main reasons that I quit drinking was because you stopped putting up with it. You did. You you didn't do it formally like we're suggesting. You didn't write down what you deserve and then demand it. But you did that in a less formal way. That's basically what you did. I'm not yeah. putting up with and this I mean, shit anymore. Yeah, and then, you know, a couple of the final straws was just you had stopped drinking and then there was... Drinking and bad behavior, and then you realize the effects on the kids, especially the older one, and you were like, I can't do this because you had already been feeling bad because I had kind of closed you off emotionally. So. Yeah. The listener question talked about sex. He wants more and better sex. So let's take that prompt and keep talking about sex, Sherry. I know that's your favorite thing to do. There are two ways sex can go in an alcoholic relationship. Uh, the, the sex can just dry up. When things start to get bad, this happens quite frequently, the um, physical connection just kind of ends. Um, the non-alcoholic partner isn't always the one that initiates that, but they're just they're fed up. They don't want any part of this. And um, after, you know, going a period of time without sexual contact, it just kind of becomes the new normal. And people will go years and years without having sex because the relationship is in such turmoil um, that it, it just becomes kind of like a side item and one that they're not willing to to work on or address. So that's one of the the ways that sex can go in an alcoholic relationship. The other way it can go is the way it went with you and me for us. And that is continued sexual contact. That is no bueno. Just, um, it's one sided. It's selfish. It's sloppy. It's, uh, frustrating. And I have to say that there is rejection inherent in consent what I mean by that is, you know, when you and I would have sexual contact when I was in active addiction, you consented to it. You reluctantly agreed. And, but I could tell you weren't interested. You weren't getting pleasure from it. You know, often it was kind of like the last place you wanted to be. And so talk about what that consent felt like to you. Like, why, why did you agree if you, re if you didn't want it? Well, I agreed because you were an arguer. You just didn't shut down quietly and go and sulk and cry on your pillow. You argued and bitched and moaned and I didn't want to wake the kids. And it just would have spurred more... Um, it would have just spurred more resentments, even though it did build resentments, but there would have just been a lot more um, recon, I guess, after the evening or the fighting all night long. So it was just easier to give in than it was to try to have a good argument. And 
a lot of the times your argument would be, what you used to enjoy it. You would always want to have sex, like, in the beginning. Yeah, well, you weren't nearly as disgusting as you are now to me, so... I couldn't really say those words to you like I had said in the during the listener question. If I had said, these are the things that make you unattractive to me and I don't want to have sex because of those, that would have just not worked at the time either. Is it accurate, though, to for me to... My recollection is that the vast majority of the times... I mean, maybe something real special would happen... Um, and you would be into it, but that was rare. The vast majority of the times you were just getting through it. Yeah. Did, did the whole wifely duty thing enter your mind? Like we're married. Um, no, this is an expectation. No, cause it didn't. that was my, that it's my body and it's my choice. Even so, back then. Even back then. I know then. you know that now, but even yeah, back even then. back then I didn't feel pressured just because I was married to you to have sex. And I mean, I remember there was an argument that maybe once or twice that when we did talk about those things, you know, I said, giving in because I have no other choice is like not a good thing. Like I would classify that because, you know, I think I said the word like date rape or something, you know, being forced to do it because you don't have a choice. And that's how I feel. And so that, of course, that was a huge argument. But I always felt like it was my choice, my body, and your behavior was going to dictate whether or not it was going to happen. But then your behavior would be so poor if it didn't happen. So I definitely consented because I knew it was the lesser of two evils. But I never had that like feeling of wifely duty or it was expected. I mean... I didn't know that. That's interesting. I thought so I that played into it. I think, no, I think that's why there was a lot more resentment and a lot more hurt and a lot more hurdles to cross when we did try to repair the relationship with, you know. So consented but coerced, is that a fair way to say it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think my description of it from my side of it, which, you know, I'm the bad guy in this, admittedly so, so I don't know that anybody gives a shit what my emotional you know, and I am going to just say, like, you never forced me to, you know, like right. physically. Right. It would be verbal antagonizing and coercement, and and you were really good at verbally talking me into things. And there were different, you know. But then I, most I didn't of the time, sit it, and plan it. Yeah, I mean, I it was sit that. and plan it. But there were different, definitely different <laughs> tactics. There were. Oh, I really need this. I feel so bad. This will make me feel connected to you. Yeah. I need that closeness. You know, don't you want to support me? Yeah. Don't and then you want as to help I, me? And then as I realized that their arguing wouldn't end, and yeah. it was just easier to give in. That's... But so there was that, that kind of pleading. There was also like, it's been a long time. Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether you thought of it as a wifely duty or not... You certainly... My kind of dark that, and yeah. twisted mind did sometimes. Yeah. Um... So, like I said, I'm not expecting anyone to feel sympathy or empathy for me, but I, I just want to go back to that phrase, the rejection inherent in consent. This is important because as the drinker, you would acquiesce, you would give me what I was asking for, but I didn't know that the thing I was asking for wasn't what I really needed. Ugh, that's very loaded. What I really needed really was that connection. 
what I really needed was emotional intimacy. I needed you. And I said, I did say this sometimes. I remember saying, I need you to want me. It's not enough for you to give it up. I need you to want me. Yeah. And you just were, and, and you've never, as far as I know, either you're a really, really great liar and you've been lying to me my whole life, but I don't think so. I think you can't lie. I, my experience with you is that you're a terrible liar and you, so when I would say I need you to want me, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You know, if if I said, you know, can't you initiate and put on, you know, something sexy and like you just can't do it. Even when things are good, you're just not able to do that. And so that's not a criticism. I think that's a huge blessing for me because if you had been able to give me that feeling where I felt like you wanted me, God, I'd probably still be a drinker. Or maybe not. I don't know. But whatever. Um, it would have masked how bad the problem was because yeah. you couldn't do that. So every time, almost every time we had sexual contact, I knew you weren't into it and didn't want to be there. And uh, it felt like shit. So again, not looking for sympathy, but I am trying to explain because the self-esteem piece is so important for recovery of the alcoholic and the loved one. And so every time we would have sex, I was getting what I asked for and it was also taking a little bit more away from the little bit of self-esteem I had. Yeah. Yeah. I Well, and I just want to like throw in there, I this is... And I don't know if so much of it was... Because you're very... Um, gosh, I should have had more caffeine this morning. You, Matt, you can talk about your feelings and emotions. Truthfully, honestly, you could exaggerate with them when you were drinking. You had no problem sharing where you were. Yeah. No closed-offness. It's a weird quirk about me. For some it's people... very, very un-male-like. <laughs> yes. You do not fit that stereotypical male. For a lot of males, or for some people, they need to have sex to then open up that vulnerability. They think that's a connection and vulnerability, and that's when they can share, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. afterwards. Well, like, yeah. So, so when you would say, like, so when you're saying you needed that connection, that feeling, it, for some people, it triggered a lot more than just the physical connection. It was an emotional bonding. So I think that that's a really hard hurdle to cross, too, because they need to have sex to then feel connected, to feel open and vulnerable and talk. And this is something that we've seen and heard of in, like, our groups that and people that we work with. Yeah. Like, the sex is real hard. So then I feel like you've said there's either two ways. Either it goes away or you just do it complacently in the relationship. I feel like there can be that third leg of it is sex is a way to connect, but then to get that vulnerability open. And if you've got a partner who has just been coerced into having sex, or it's a weekly chore, then that connection ends up making it difficult to kind of cross paths because they have to learn, and I had to learn, to be vulnerable and open um, around you when we were getting both healthy um, just on a day-to-day -day basis and tell you my feelings. And then that kind of made sex a little bit easier to feel engaged in 
just because I had been so closed off from you and you were getting healthier and better. But I just want to like throw, I'm not trying to throw a wrench in the whole podcast, but I just feel like there are a lot of people where sex is that connection and that open. Yeah. You're not throwing a wrench in. You're, you're going to kind of the graduate level of what, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about today because... We can remember who's schooled and who's not. Yeah, well, I'm just saying, you're absolutely right. There, the the connection between intimacy and trust is undetachable. It is interwoven. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't even want to think about intimacy. Uh, I gotta, I got to learn how to trust this person again first. And I'm here to say one of the ways to regain the trust is through an intentional intimacy practice that we'll talk about in the future. We won't, but, but you're, you're definitely hitting the tip of the iceberg. One person's way to get vulnerable and intimate is through sexual contact. And the other person, um, can't imagine, uh, enjoying sexual contact because everything else in their interaction with that person is not intimate and safe and emotionally connected. And so it's a huge chicken or the egg. Yeah. But it's one we're working on a, you know, honestly working on a solution for. Um, I joke that we're uneducated and we mostly are, but I am one semester away from a master's in uh, sexual health. So I've learned a ton about this. And one of the things I've learned is to listen to my good friend, Esther Perel. And I've got two things I want to share. Friend is one-sided. Yeah, I love her, and she doesn't know who I am. (laughs) But you know, in case some of our listeners don't know who she is, I know Jane doesn't, so I'm going to tell Jane (laughs) she is a Belgian American psychotherapist (laughs) who specializes in relationships and intimacy and sex and stuff like that. But two things that Esther Perel has shared with us—I mean, she shared a thousand things—but the two that stick in my mind, she talks about how. You can't take care of someone. You can't be their caretaker and be their romantic partner at the same time. And she talks about how for most women, foreplay starts at the end of the last orgasm. And so this kind of ties into what you were just saying. Me and lots of alcoholics, we are looking for sex to bring that intimate connection, that emotional connection you know, the trust, the bonding, whatever words you want to use. And so we look at it as the result of a good sexual encounter. For many people on your side of the fence, Sherry, you can't imagine a good sexual encounter because that intimate connection, the trust, the safety, that all comes from um, having, when we say foreplay starts at the end of the last orgasm, having civility and safety and kind words and consistency. Consi- yep. You got any others? Keep going. Consistency. <clears throat> um, and it depends on how far you are into the recovery, but like having some fun together, yep. sharing good times, building good memories to replace with the bad. I heard a story over the holidays. Um, one of the couples that we've gotten to know and that we're very fond of talked about how their relationship has really struggled. He's been sober for quite a while now, but the relationship has really struggled. And I heard the story about over Christmas, one of his daughters has really had a hard time with his alcoholism and recovery. 
and they were watching a family Christmas movie, and that daughter that's had a hard time really kind of snuggled up to him and kind of crawled under his arm, and, and he sat there with his arm around her, and he looked over at his wife, and she was grinning at that, at, at witnessing that scene. And I know this might make me perverted, but I thought, oh, that's done more for your intimacy than anything you could do, you know, in the bedroom or anything you could do to set the mood. And I know that, again, might sound perverted because I'm talking about this man's teenage daughter, but the his wife seeing her bond back to her, and I can see there's tears welling in your eyes as I'm, and you already knew this story. But that's the part that we don't understand. We alcoholics don't understand. We don't understand where that connection comes from. Some of us think or thought that it comes from this great sexual experience and we've just got it backwards. That might be the case for us, but we've got to create the environment that allows for the good sexual experience so that we can get our connection because your connection comes from someplace else. It comes from the day-to-day. And back to Esther's first point, you can't caretake and be romantic. You can't be someone's mom and also their lover. And so if in sobriety we are... You know, we are notorious for saying, I need your support, I need your support, I need your shoulder to cry, and I need you to understand how hard this is. All right. But you're risking but yeah. turning your wife into your mom. Or your, if you turn your wife into your mom. Your sponsor. Yeah. I mean. If you turn your wife into your mom or your sponsor, she's not going to want to climb in bed with you. So you need to go get that elsewhere. For for two reasons. One, you don't want to turf, turn your wife into your mom and have her turned off. But the other reason is... She's, and I'm, I'm using male and female gender, and I'm sorry for that, but it's the most typical case. She has been through hell and back because of your drinking. You think she wants to help you right now? She's angry, and she's resentful, and she's in pain. Go find a different support network. Find a group. Find a therapist. Find a sponsor. Do what, there's a million uh, programs out there now. Also, find what's attractive is, is seeing someone... Take on the responsibility and the accountability to go find their own help and showing that little bit of independence. Yes. I mean, people don't get in relationship and partnerships to be completely dependent on one another. I mean, I know we like to have the help, but there's also an attraction of seeing someone be a problem solver, try different things. Figuring out what they might need and sharing it with, but not relying solely on your partner for every connection. Seeing a little bit of independence. And not, you know, not taking the person that's gotten the brunt of your alcoholism and making them be the one that does all this for you. The reason I think I, like, teared up during that story, even though I knew it, is because, you know, here is a child who has been like grew up in the alcoholic home letting their guard down so that gives like the mom permission to kind of let her guard down too because I think kids are very intuitive and they know what's going on and it's hard to forgive when you have other people besides just the romantic partner being you know, I'm going to use the word assaulted, but that's not necessarily the right word. Assaulted in the alcoholic home. Yeah. So, 
you know, there is a there is an attraction to having some independence and problem solving. And it also makes us remember, hey, you have a brain and you're figuring out how to use it for good, not just for manipulation. Yeah. Well, there you go again, taking us <clears throat> taking a message to the graduate level. I mean, Esther Perel does talk about that. She talks about how attraction is seeing your partner be um, doing their best in their area. So sometimes that can be work, you know, seeing them succeed at work, seeing them succeed in the community, being a volunteer, being a leader, and seeing them being a good parent. That is, a, for you, Sherry, let's be specific, that is attractive to you to see me, um, you know, be my best self. You, you said, you've said many times on this podcast that what initially attracted you to me wasn't my physical appearance. What initially attracted you to me was that I was getting a degree in a tough, you know, part of the university we were going to, tough program, and I had goals and dreams, and I had a family track record of success, so you said, this guy's going to go out and do the things he says he's going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. that's it. So, you know, when we... I feel like succeed is the wrong word because I don't want to make this like tied to financial success. But when we uh, know who we are and we go out and we act like that and we have an impact and we have good relationships with people besides you, prosperous relationships, valuable relationships, that's attractive to you. Yeah. And so... And also I'll add to one of my list of the attractions is we lived close to my family when we were in college. So watching you interact with my family, and I had nephews that were in later elementary school, early middle school, watching you interact and have fun with them was also very attractive because I saw how you treated others. Yeah. Yep. Um, I used to think that you were broken because you couldn't give me, as the listener question said, more and better sex. Um, Now I understand. It's not that you couldn't give it. You had no interest in it. And that's just because the, like, there were holes in the runway, right? It's hard to land the plane when there's potholes in the runway. And so everything that I did that would lead up to sexual encounters was making it impossible for you to give me more and better. And now I'm trying to earn what I... In what I call enthusiastic consent, I'm not like saying I coined that phrase, but I love that phrase. I'm trying to earn enthusiastic consent, and you know, I when it comes to our physical intimacy, when it comes to sex, I really want it to be something that you want to be a part of, not something that you are acquiescing to because you know I'm going to keep you up all night arguing if you don't, and that's my goal. Um, my goal is less about frequency or what it is we do exactly. My goal is to have you be excited about it. Do do you feel that? Can you tell that that's, that's important to me? Yeah. I mean, we check in with each other about, um, sex every night. (coughs) I can't believe I said that. Um, I got a little choked up that I... Had trouble saying those words. This is my notes right here. Uh, You just got there before me. Wow. So, I think if you know that I'm not really that interested, you will be like, "No, 
thank you. You know, because you'd rather have quality. Yes. And have an engagement and a connect, a real connection. And that goes a lot longer than, you know, a quickie. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, fine. Yeah. Do you want to have sex, Sherry? Fine. That was always my line. Um, oh, yeah. During I remember drinking that. days. You, you didn't mention that. I can't believe that because that was like the argument. And you couldn't say again. You can't lie. So you couldn't say that you wanted to. You could say that. You, I would say, do you want to have sex? You'd say, we can. And I'd say, I know we can, but do you want to? Yeah, it's fine. You could not say that you wanted to because you wouldn't lie to me. Oh, that was frustrating. <laughs> and accurate and wonderful, and I'm proud of you for it. But So, you know, when I, when I want enthusiastic consent, one of the things that I've had to come to realize, and I mean, I've come to realize this during the duration of this podcast. If you listen to earlier episodes... There are some where I was very confused about this, but I've come to realize it's not about my physical appearance, which is good because for most of this podcast, you've been pointing at a wild gray hair in my beard that apparently is going its own direction. (laughs) You're over there pointing and laughing at me. And, um, you know, actually, while we're talking about my beard, um, I only have this beard because I know that your attraction is not about my physical appearance. You don't like beards. You just don't. And so for many, many years, I was clean shaven because I thought, look at me, I'm doing what you want and I'm trying to be more physically attractive to you. And then I realized you didn't give a shit and it wasn't having an impact on our sex life. And so I said, you know what? I want a beard, so I'm going to have it for me. So my beard is for me. Not you. And I I have to make this point, even though you're anti-beard, it has not impacted our relationship in any way. Intimacy, trust, safety, any of that. Yeah, your appearance, your physical appearance has not changed that. Ironically, the other day, one of our children, and I'm never going to tell you which one, said, why do you think it is when 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 men become sober, they start to look more like they're alcoholics and (laughs) homeless? couple of you standing next to each other former addicts in a place that we were at (laughs) we because they're like like thinking of the pictures that are on the wall and like our wedding pictures you always had short hair like for a while yes and we had a business and you couldn't have had a beard in our business of the bakery and i would have had to wear a beard yeah you would have had to wear a beard guard and that sort of stuff so you kept you know but like for the longest time people thought you were steve carell because you kept your hair short and clean shaven and stuff, but listen. So I, I did answer. I said, "I want you to be proud of me." I My know answer, which one of the kids it was. Don't like that's not even hard. You're gonna have to tell me who you think it is. I said, "Self confidence," because he's leaning into something that he's never been able to do before. Because he always had to be protective of who he was. And back to Esther Perel, that part of it's attractive to you, right? Yeah. All you're right. being confident about, listen, I want to have longer hair. I want to have a beard. Listen, I do the laugh. The reason when... we look like addicts as we get sober is because there's a lot of tread taken off the tires <laughs> during active addiction and and trying to fight for sobriety. I talk about it like, you know, like, you know, you just got to do, do it and understand these things and learn all this stuff. And I, I say it so kind of flippantly now. I shouldn't. It's hard freaking work. Yeah. 
It is. Sorry. I think I just spit um, coffee on the microphone laughing when you said there's a lot of tread taken off the tires. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That'll be my next answer. Okay. Great. So it's not about physical appearance. It's about emotional safety. No name calling. No raised voices. No dismissed opinions. And very little teasing. That I think that is kind of in my brain. Those are the things that that swim around and that I try to implement. So it it you know we hear we hear it a lot. We hear people well into sobriety working on their relationship. We hear, oh you know, but he called me a bitch, or um, you know he blamed it all on me and blah 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 blah. And he was screaming and yelling at me and. Like, that's got to go, man. That's got to go. I think the understanding of how important the safe environment is, is just fundamental to us alcoholics in recovery for understanding of how our behavior needs to change. You know, it would be, and I did it too. I did it too. I'm a guilty, but I would get really upset in sobriety, in early sobriety, and I would still call you names or I would yell at you or I would tell you it was your fault or I would just tell you I'm... I'm hurting and I'm struggling and this is hard and you don't understand and you're not trying to understand and say that in a raised voice. Look, it's 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 got to go. It's it's akin to the whole I can't make you my mom and my lover at the same time. So I need to stop trying to make you into my mom. I also need to understand how important your emotional safety is. How important it is to turn our house that we've spent all these years in in this alcoholic chaos and trauma and you have certain feelings and opinions as it relates to that, I've got to turn this this place with these bad memories into a place of safety. And that is hard. And you can't be inconsistent. You can't yell one minute and not the next and call a name one minute and tell you I love you yeah, next. And I just want to throw in there too, like you can share, oversharing about your feelings. Because that's checking in, that's being connected, that's showing vulnerability, and that builds the attraction. But you can't be reliant on that person to be your, um, you know, like we said, your mom or your sponsor. So being closed off just to hide those feelings and shoving them down, that doesn't help either. Because then you're not building intimacy in the relationship because you're, if you do that as the alcoholic because you're worried about you know, sharing too much and oversharing and whatever, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. Like, if you don't, then you're just being closed off and fake, and that's going to build resentment, and then that, then your partner's going to say, oh, well, I can't tell them how I'm feeling either. Because we have seen that before, where, like, we can't talk about our feelings because we don't want to upset the apple cart because it might go, you know, toppling over if I say, I'm really struggling today, um, you know, as the alcoholic, I'm really struggling and I feel like I want to drink or this is the time of, you know, cause that would hurt me in, you know, before this last time of sobriety, when you would say that I would get all freaked out. Mm-hmm. Now I understand that those are cravings and those are something that's going to happen or there's going to be an emotional, you know, day or something has really hit a wall, you know, and I have to be confident and strong enough to say, okay, well I'm as the sober partner I'm going to have to learn to deal with those things Mm -hmm. but I appreciated that you were saying that stuff because at least then we were keeping connected and keeping in touch but you didn't there were times in the past where you overshared yeah and it was too much yeah 
That's why having support groups for oversharing is a great thing, and that but keeping in touch and keeping connected. Therefore, the daily, the weekly talks, yeah, or just the little daily check in, and I think that's appropriate. Yeah, and that's one of the two kind of last things I want to hit on before we get to the the daily check in. Um, it was really important for me to understand when it comes specifically to the sex part of intimacy and that connection, that your orgasm is important, but it's not the only goal for you. I think, you know, and this comes from not only our experience, but from my formal education as well. For, you know, for the male, the orgasm is the ultimate goal of the sexual encounter. Pretty much every time. For the female, it's not. And that has been your experience. Sometimes, yes, uh, that is important to you. And and bringing that level of pleasure is important. But sometimes you just want to be treated tenderly. You want to have skin-to-skin connection. Um, sometimes you want, like you get pleasure out of seeing me getting pleasure. Is everything I'm saying accurate? Incredibly embarrassing and accurate. Thank yeah. you very much for opening that up to the world. Well, I was not going to talk much about that section because I know it's not your favorite. But but the, the point is, you get other things out of it. Um, and that, that was hard for me to learn. I thought if if we didn't get you, you know, all the way there, then I had failed. And I didn't understand there are nights, and now I do understand, there are times you don't want to get all the way there. That's not what, that's not what the goal is. You, you're getting other things out of our physical intimacy, um, and and that's really important. And there's there's a whole there's a um, you know survival of the fittest, a, a natural selection component of this. The the man's orgasm is responsible for keeping the species alive, and the woman's is not. I mean, we could go into boring detail, but let's not. Why don't you talk with your grad classmates? The fact that class. the fact that the the dude almost always like that's I got to get there. Um, that's just that's genetics. That's in us, and our uh, uneducated assumption that that's the ultimate goal for the female too is hugely problematic in our society. That's not always what you're looking for. It's important. Can't be ignored. I can see you don't want to talk about this anymore. So let's move on to the uh, the thing that you've brought up twice now. But the fact that we do do that nightly check-in. We do talk about sex every single night. Um, and it, it has eliminated uh, frustration and anticipation. And sitting there and hoping that your partner is picking up your vibes. Because often... Maybe your partner's a better vibe picker-upper than you and I are, but often they don't. And so that leads to frustration and rejection. And so rather than, you know, it being a night where I am particularly interested in sex and hoping that you're going to figure that out, and then you don't, and then I'm frustrated, or conversely, a night where you're particularly uninterested and I'm really pushing, and you don't say it, you just grit your teeth and do it. Like we've completely eliminated all of that from our relationship. Every night we say, Hey, where are you? Little check in. And there are times and, and we've we've gotten to be really honest about it. It's really it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, it's super unromantic. 
I mean, it is like the opposite of candles and rose petals. Like it is, it is like, hey, let's dump some cold water on each other and then talk about sex. Turn on all the lights and dump some cold water yeah. on each other. It's it's all of that, but it has proven to be really, really effective. And I would say more times than not, we are picking up what the other person is putting down. And I, there are many nights where I'm like, look, you just had an argument with one of our kids. I know that is a that hits the brakes hard for you. So I know you have no interest. I'm in an okay place. I don't need it. No worries. Let's not let's not do that tonight. Um, and, but then it also opens up the avenue four times where I'm like, you know, wow. I don't know why you got some pheromone juju going on over there, but I am really really attracted to you right now. And you know the again the avenue is open for us to have that awkward conversation and have it lead to a much more mutually satisfactory intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Fair enough? Yes. Um, do you, well, you, you do agree that it's an awkward thing to do? Um, it was very awkward in the beginning. It's not as awkward now. Yeah. Because we're just in a healthier place um, in the relationship and it's made it a little easier and you're more understanding and I'm more understanding. Yeah. It all, you know, comes down to respect, respect for each other's opinion. I used to try to tell you what your opinion should be and not necessarily, I wasn't a particularly respectful. And I unknowingly shamed you for having a higher libido. Oh yeah. That was actually in my notes and we didn't get to it. Mm -hmm. But you now have an understanding that I am who I am and I'm wired this way and it doesn't make me a disgusting pervert. We just, Mm -hmm. we have... uh, I never thought of disgusting pervert. I just thought horn dog. But if you want to call that a disgusting pervert... But, yeah, so it just, and that made you feel bad, and I unknowingly did that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the the, uh, non-congruence of uh, desire is super, super common. Oh, is that a term you learned in your class? Yeah, I guess it is. But super common, and it can go either way. It's not always man wants more, a woman wants less. Sometimes it's the opposite, but it's rare for people to line up. Yeah. So almost everybody in their relationship is dealing with this one direction or the other. And, that, and talking about it helps a ton. Because I think it opens up the door for respect. Yeah. And I super respect your opinion, which, and I didn't used to. I used to try to tell you what your opinion was. But now that I respect your opinion, I've learned that your opinion is almost always right. So your apprehension about this podcast episode, Rumble with Amber, I'm scared to death about this <laughs> now because you think it's a bad idea. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.